0: Pepperidge Farm Milano. you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candice Keener, joined as always by staff writer Jane McGrath. Hey there. Hey, Jane. You didn't have to salute me, but thank you. That's very nice. <laughs> I'm just fixing my hair. Sorry. Oh, my mistake. Send mixed messages. So we get a lot of emails asking questions about early American history and different parts of European history, and you guys are also seemingly really curious about people of the past, and we actually had this great classic, no pun intended, article on Archimedes that had been languishing in our queue for a while. So we thought it is time to talk about one of the most legendary weapons of warfare in all of the ancient world. So we have this great article on the
2: site called What Was Archimedes' Death, Ray? by our colleague, Josh Clark. Uh, To give you some background, Archimedes lived in about the third century B.C. in Syracuse. And this was basically modern-day Sicily. It was a part of modern-day Sicily, but it was a part of the Greece. It was under um, attack during his life by the Romans.
1: So just to give you guys sort of a visual map of where Syracuse was, if you visualize Italy's boot, you all pretty much know where Rome is, and the little stone that the boot is kicking, well, that's about where Syracuse was. And at the other end of that stone was the northernmost tip of Africa, and that's where the ancient city of Carthage was. And so we see in the ancient world, that there was this huge conflict in which Syracuse was embroiled, and it was sort of the the monkey in the middle between Carthage and Rome.
2: Mm -hmm. And Egypt is important as well. I know you and Josh did a podcast before my time about Egypt's influence on Greek thinkers, and... Archimedes, like many of his great thinkers, great Greek thinkers of the time, traveled to Egypt and did a lot of studying there, and that's where he learned a lot of things to make him the brilliant mathematician and inventor that he became. He's most known for determining about the approximate value of pi. As well as the fact that the surface area of a sphere is about four times, is exactly the four times the area of the circle that passes through the center of the sphere and things like this. And in addition to all these things, he made a lot of war machines. But he was actually, he, he was most proud of his geometric theories. And he was interesting is that he requested that on his tomb that it feature uh, a cylinder object with a sphere inside. So you can see how proud he was of his geometric.
1: And he ideas. was sort of one of those incredibly dumb geniuses. And I say that. Not to be rude, but because he was often so absorbed in what he was doing, whether it was calculus or some sort of geometric theorem or something with the principle of hydrostatics, that he would become so involved in his task at hand that he would forget that his public behavior was seen as a little bit ludicrous. Supposedly, when he discovered the principle of hydrostatics, he was getting into the bathtub. And basically what that principle says is that the amount of water an object displaces is equal to the weight of that object in the water. Does that make sense? Yeah,
2: what he was trying to do at that point was, he was good friends with the king, King Huron, and he had uh, a wreath crown made of gold, but he, the king suspected that it wasn't pure gold, but it had some silver impurities, and he asked Archimedes to find a way to figure out, is this pure gold or not? And this, uh, the displacement of water, as you ta- were talking about, was uh, he finally figured it out when he got in the bath.
1: Yeah, so that would have been important to know the differences between the weight of gold versus the weight of silver. So he would have solved the king's dilemma. And he would have solved an important uh, dilemma of physical properties. And as legend goes, when he discovered it, he said, Eureka! And he ran down the street buck naked. <laughs> so, Yeah, that's a curious story as
2: well, because there's a, another story that I hadn't heard when I was researching for this podcast about his bathing habits. Um, <laughs> was that Plutarch wrote that Archimedes was so obsessed with math and geometry that his servants had to force him to take baths, and that even while they were scrubbing him down, he was writing geometric figures on himself and on the walls and
1: stuff like that. So it was it was bizarre. Like a brilliant child yeah, in a way. Yeah. Sure. Gosh, these mad geniuses. Well, we digress a little bit, but not really because it's all part and parcel to understanding the genius behind Archimedes. And in addition to his mathematical discoveries, he's also known for perfecting the um the lever, as well as a device called a compound pulley and a hydraulic screw. So he was able to use all these different types of simple tools to um, essentially build complex but relatively simple war machines. Like, for instance, he used the principles of a lever to construct a claw that could reach outside the walls that bound Syracuse and actually pick up Roman ships and destroy them. And he famously once said, "'Give me a lever long enough and a place to stand, and I will move the world.'" And he wasn't just talking out of his other end. He really meant it. He could use these very complex theorems to build practical wartime devices that the city of Syracuse could use.
2: Yeah, and... Uh, historians like to point out that it's hard to distinguish fact from fiction in his life. Like the stories we told you about the Eureka and the Bath story and the the quotes that he said that people remember, they might not have been true. Historians usually dismiss them. But some things about his inventions and his life are really hard to distinguish, even for historians. And that is especially true when it comes to his historic death ray, which I guess when you hear that, it sort of sounds like an ancient laser. Like somehow Archimedes was able to create a big laser that destroyed things in its path. But it wasn't exactly like that. It was a much uh, simpler machine that worked on basic rules of, of light and heat.
1: Yeah, and I think principles of of what is concave versus what is convex. And according to Galen, who wrote about the death ray some 350 years after Archimedes' death, it worked like this. He would position a series of people to hold a series of mirrors, and he would instruct them very specifically which angle to hold them at, and by concentrating a beam of light, he could actually set Roman ships aflame. And we're talking ships anywhere from, I think, 200 to 1,000 feet away that were sort of undulating in the waves of the Mediterranean. And it sounds a little bit suspect for several reasons. First of all, the fact that it was first written about that many years after his death. Secondly, another point being, this type of mirror warfare never became part of the main arsenal. Why wouldn't anyone else have used it? Right. If it was so effective, why didn't they take the idea and use it for then on? Exactly. And I guess my response to that would be, just playing devil's advocate, maybe it was so complex and so mathematically dense how one had to hold this complex series of mirrors that no one got it except for Archimedes. I like that theory. That's just a thought. Yeah, but I
2: think uh, um, everyone deserves to put in their two cents about whether this could have happened because they really don't know. And many, many people have tried. Most uh notably um the Mythbusters, if you ever watch that show on the Discovery Channel. They tried twice. They actually did it one time in, I think, their first season, and they busted the myth. The way they set it up, they couldn't get it to work, and they said it was implausible, that Archimedes did. And they got so many complaints after this show aired. They got a (laughs) lot of complaints from viewers emailing them saying, like, oh, what about this situation? You ignored these possibilities that would have made it plausible. And so they got so many complaints that they actually did another show about it, and they challenged the viewers to try to come up with a way that it could
1: be plausible. And they busted the myth even then. And a group of MIT students got together, and they were able to successfully set a ship on fire. Granted, it was a model ship. It was much, much smaller. It was only, like, I think a a couple hundred feet away. It was stationary on a rooftop. And perhaps... That's the big clinker there. It wasn't undulating in the waves. You know, if an object is sitting that still Mm -hmm. and you're concentrating that much light on it, yeah, you probably could set it on fire. But you have to take into account the distance that it is away from you, plus the fact that it's bobbing up and down. Yeah, and they had a particularly
2: cloudless day. I mean, it's possible that Archimedes had that. And the, the MIT, to give them credit, they did use like an oak replica of the ship, which was probably what the Romans would have used. And like you said, the the, um, undulating waves would have made it, so it was definitely not a stationary object. But there was another uh, earlier experiment in 1973. A Greek engineer uh, did use a boat that was actually on the water as a rowboat. Um, Probably not the same material the Romans would have used, but he was able to get it on fire using an array of mirrors. So in different different experiments, different parts of it have been seen to be plausible, so there's still no
1: definite answer. Right, and... I think that the engineer used as many as 70 different people to hold mirrors that were pretty big, I think five feet by three feet. So until there's a really uniform experiment where the same number of people are used, the same number of controls are set on it, I think it's going to be hard to say whether or not it was true. But I will add another piece of knowledge that may or may not influence whether you believe in the death ray. But have you heard of the Lighthouse of Alexandria, Jane, the very famous one? I have not. No. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And oh, it was commissioned an by an article Alexander. About, yeah. yeah, I've read an article about this a long time ago. And when I was doing research for that, many, many moons ago, I read that the mirror inside the lighthouse was so strong, a, a concave mirror, that it could provide light to ships up to hundreds of miles away. And again, that could be a tall tale. But another part of the tale was that it was so strong that when the light hit it just right, it could be angled to set ships far away away. On fire. Hmm. And I thought, well, that's weird because construction began on the lighthouse around 285 BC, just two years before uh, Archimedes would have been born. Furthermore, Archimedes, like you said, studied. In Alexandria. So he would have gone over when the lighthouse was either being built or remodeled, because we know it was constantly remodeled, and he would have been there at least to observe the engineers at work or the great minds who were conceiving of how to build the lighthouse and how to revamp the mirror system. So it's just interesting. I think you
2: just blew the story wide open. I don't know. I don't
1: know. You guys are going to have to email me and tell tell me what you think. And Mm. this is just something I happen to put two and two together. I don't know if there's any connection between the type of mirror in the lighthouse and the type of mirror that our communities would have used, but it's a thought. But all the science aside, because that is not my forte, um, drawing conclusions is my forte, I (laughs) wanted to bring you guys just full circle to the story of the Siege of Syracuse. Um, We know that this was a pretty big war that was raging between the Carthaginians and the Romans. And like we said, Syracuse was stuck right in the middle. And the first Punic War, we saw... Uh, We saw Syracuse sort of siding with with Rome because there was a tribute system established where they would provide the Romans with grain and they would give them a little bit of tribute and they'd be protected, essentially. But then Hannibal comes along and he is just so darn successful scaling the Alps and breaking into Italy that Syracusans think, well, maybe we need to side with Carthage. Rome did not like that at all. So they sent this really scary general, Marcus Marcellus. First, they sent him to a neighboring town where he killed everyone. Then he moved on to Syracuse. They heard he was coming. So they fortified the city, and they were able to keep them out for a really long time. Mm -hmm. But then they broke in. And so I think Jane has this one more fabulous anecdote that may or may not be true about poor, hapless Archimedes absorbed in his work. And let me note, too, that Marcellus is pretty adamant. No one kill Archimedes. I think he really respected this guy's genius, and he was pretty ticked off when he found out about this.
2: Yeah, that's right. Like Candace said, Archimedes and his war machines were able to hold them off for a while, but they eventually got in, and Archimedes was so wrapped up in his geometric figures when when a soldier came to arrest him and take him away, that he screamed to the soldier, and he was like, Leave my circles alone, I think is the loose translation. (laughs) (laughs) I love the use of circles, like, don't touch my circles. (laughs) Don't touch
1: my circles.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the, the soldier got so upset that
1: he killed Archimedes in a rage. And according to Plutarch and Pliny the Elder... Marcellus was very much grieved at this situation, but he was not the nicest man. He broke into Syracuse on a day when the Syracusians had abandoned their posts because they were celebrating the Festival of Artemis. So he was pretty sneaky. Hmm. And he'd known that if he was launching a sneak attack, he might lose the one guy he valued so much. And who knows if he really loved Archimedes for the crazy genius he was, or if he wanted to take him back to Rome to put him to work there. We don't know. Yeah. But that aside, all of these wonderful musings that Jane and I have can be found not only in our podcasts, but also in our brand new blog. That's right. We both uh, blog once a day, and uh, it's called Stuff You Missed in History Class, and it's all on HowStuffWorks.com. So be sure to visit the website to read our entries, our latest posts, and also read the entirety of this article, What Was Archimedes' Death Rite, on HowStuffWorks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com.
2: The richest, most powerful place on Earth.
1: A fiction podcast. Tuman Bay. 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 On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything.
0: We have to get away from this place.
1: Tuman Bay is our
0: destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sure. Shall- and
2: die for
0: Tumen Bay. Listen to all episodes of Tumen Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, here to let you know that my podcast, Next Question with me, Katie Couric, is back for its second season. I'll be diving into some big issues, like this country's devastating maternal mortality rate the rise of astrology, and a little thing called the presidential election. Listen to Next Question. It comes out every Thursday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows.